0: The following podcast is a glimpse into the life of Ecclesia Houston. We pray it is a blessing as you seek to follow Jesus, the Liberating King, and live in his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Well, you are here on a great Sunday, because I'm going to give you an opportunity to earn some money from me. So we just took our offering, our offering, and so if you want to earn yours back, I'm gonna give you a chance. This is fair and square. I've got one question for you. If you're able to answer it, uh, then I will give you money. All right? What are the names of my parents? Not not mom and dad, unless you are an OBGYN and you don't wanna learn your patient's name. And that's what they all do. Nobody? Nobody. I've been a pastor here for five years. (laughs) My parents' names are Richard and Gloria Palmer. This is us when I was a kid. I'm the shortest one there, I'm now the tallest one, so I have overcome all things. So that's my dad, Richard, my mom, Gloria, who I just realized how much my youngest daughter looks like my mom, my older brother, Richard Jr., and me. And as I get older, one of the things that I realize about life from so many different angles is how much I am like my parents. And all you have to do is keep living and you will discover how much you are like your parents. Like one of my favorite fitness coaches says, here's the the reality of your life. Two people got together, they created you, and like now you have all of their combined junk. Like, there is stuff about you that you got from your parents that you cannot, cannot, cannot change, or you got from your grandparents or your great-grandparents. It is just built into your DNA. Now, there's a lot about life that you can change. There's a lot that you can shape, but there's a lot that you just can't shape at all. It came preloaded. And then to add another layer to that, there are things about you that you picked up from your parents and your family, your family of origin, that weren't necessarily preloaded, but you picked up in habits, mannerisms, the way that we do it, the way that it's always been done. When I was in college, I had a roommate who was super neurotic and high strung. And he was very much out of step with the rest of us because he got good grades and we were just there to have fun. And one parents' weekend, his parents came to town. And as we interacted with his parents in the house, we knew exactly why he was the way that he was. And some of you have found this out after you got married, like you married this person that you loved and you found out the weird stuff about them, they got directly from their parents. And you may have discovered that the weird stuff about you, you got directly from your parents. And it's not part of the DNA, but it's part of the world that shaped you. And I'm gonna say something that everyone here already knows is true. But in many ways, over the course, over the arc of your life, you have tried to resist that being true. And it's this, before you were born, the world was already going on. And you've resisted it because somewhere along the way, you told yourself that you were the center of the world that you are the center of everything that's happening, that you are the most important player, and, and that's fine because from your perspective, everything else is around you. Like someone's in front of you, behind you, next to you. From your perspective, that's really true. But there are people in the world before you, which means the world that we live in, the world that I live in, and the world that you live in is really an inherited world. It was passed on to you. Now we want to tell ourselves that we have great power to shape the world and in some ways, maybe in many ways, we really do. And some of that story like our DNA we got and can't do anything about. But there are other parts, mannerisms, habits, ticks that we have lots of control over. But you were born into a story, even though much of the story in our culture is that you weren't born into a story. One of my favorite theologians, Stanley Hauerwas puts it this way. He says, we live at a time when we believe we should have no story except the story we chose when we had no story. We call this freedom. That there's no story before me, nothing's happened. Like I get to choose, I get to be free agent in all areas of life. And here's what he means, that you, you live in what people have told you as a storyless universe, and you can make life whatever you want. So when our girls were little, there was this little baby book. And inside that baby book it's just pictures And it was pictures of a baby dressed as a fireman, one dressed as a businesswoman, another little baby dressed as a basketball player. And you know what the point of that storybook was? The point of that storybook is to lie to parents and children. (laughs) And to tell them, you can be anything you want to be that you have no story except the story you chose when you had no story. When I was an intern for a church in San Antonio, there was this high school senior who had just graduated and was about to leave for college. And he played basketball and he was going to this little known school in Baton Rouge called LSU. And the amazing thing about this kid who was leaving to go to college is that he was seven foot something like 270 pounds, and had 3% body fat. And his name was Shaquille O'Neal. Let me tell you something. You can try all the rest of your life to be seven foot, and it is not going to happen. Like, you were born into a different story than that regardless of what the baby book pictures say. And that story is really crucial. Because if you don't know what story you're in and what the story is, then you're bound to get it wrong. Because if the story you're in is something like you've got mail, but you think you're in a story like Braveheart. That's a really different way of living in a story. And you need to know that Ecclesia because today we're launching a new series talking about who is Ecclesia. What is it that makes this particular church a peculiar people at this time in Houston, Texas? And we hope over the next few weeks that you're going to learn why we do certain things the way that we do them, why we teach the way we teach, why we serve the way that we serve. You're going to hear about our history as a community. But that history didn't start a little over 20 years ago at the first worship gathering of Ecclesia. That story is an ancient story rooted in the very first days of the church. And so we want you to know about why it's important for you to be invested here and what that story is to hear what you're a part of. And the story that we're a part of is the Christian story. Now, what you're saying right now is Of course it is. We're a Christian church, so it's a Christian story. But you need to know that that is no longer something that you can take for granted in church. Because there are a lot of places that are worshiping this morning that are calling themselves Christian churches who believe that they're rooted in the Christian story, but they're rooted in another story They're rooted maybe in an American story. And they've adopted the liturgies of the politics of America as their story. And that's what they talk about. And that's what they teach to. That's what they want to drive people to. Just this last week, a very well-known seminary president told people that if they didn't vote the right way, that they not only risk their soul, but the country. That's a particular story. And there are other stories that are rooted in business culture. When I was first in ministry, I remember church leaders, lay leaders coming to say, Why don't you all run this more like a business? And I thought, so you want us to treat you like a customer? In many places are doing that very thing, it's all consumer driven. There are lots of stories masquerading as the Christian story. And so, every now and then, churches, like people, become more associated with the mannerisms and habits than with the DNA. And so this is a story that starts very early after the ascension of Jesus. That Jesus has his 12 disciples and he tells them to wait for power. And what he's talking about is the Holy Spirit is gonna come and descend upon them. And that's exactly what happens. And this is the way that Luke tells that story starting in Acts 2. It says, Peter says, men of Judea and all who are staying here in Jerusalem, listen, I want you to understand, these people aren't drunk as you might think. So what happens on the day of Pentecost, they're out, the disciples are out, this crazy scene with flaming tongues and everybody starts hearing the disciples teach in their own language. All of these people have come to Jerusalem for Passover and they are from different nations. They're different nationalities, but they're hearing the gospel in their own tongue. And people are saying like, these guys are drunk. And Peter says, no, they're not drunk. He says, no, look, it's only nine o'clock in the morning. Like, they might be drunk later. (laughs) But it's only nine o'clock. No, this isn't drunkenness. This is the fulfillment of the prophecy of Joel. Hear what God says. In the last days, I will offer my spirit to humanity as a libation. Your children will boldly speak the word of the Lord. Young warriors will see visions and your elders will dream dreams. Yes, in those days I shall offer my spirit to all servants, both male and female, and they will boldly speak my word. And in the heaven above and on the earth below, I shall give signs of impending judgment, blood, fire, and clouds of smoke. The sun will become a void of darkness and the moon will become blood. Then the great and dreadful day of the Lord will arrive and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be liberated into God's freedom and peace. All of you Israelites, listen to my message. It's about Jesus of Nazareth, a man whom God authenticated for you by performing in your presence, powerful deeds, wonders, and signs through him. Just as you yourselves know, this man, Jesus, who came into your hands by God's sure plan and advanced knowledge, you nailed to a cross and killed in collaboration with lawless outsiders. But God raised Jesus and unleashed him from the agonizing birth pangs of death, for death could not possibly keep Jesus in its power. And this is the beginning of the story. And here's what Peter says that day. He says, the story you're seeing the story that you're being invited into. It didn't even just begin today. Let me go back and tell you what Joel said hundreds of years ago, and this day would come. And Jesus is vindicated. We hear that all of the time. We hear about the crucifixion and the resurrection all of the time, that we actually miss what's going on and what the gospel actually is. It's that this, and our world is no different, that in the time of Peter and the disciples, there were tons of people claiming to be God or that there were tons of gods. And what the Christian story is, is that the God of creation, the God of the Jews, has a son named Jesus, and that Jesus has vindicated the God of the Hebrews as the only real God because this is the God who raised people from the dead. Like, that's the story. Like, if you want to just boil it down, what makes Christian Christian? It's that the God of the Hebrews had a son named Jesus, and he is the only true God, authenticated by the fact that he can raise people from the dead. And when your God can raise people from the dead, then we can talk. And that's the story. That God has the power over life and death, and we choose other God's. And for you, that might be looks or materialism or career, sex, money, whatever it is. But this is the proof. And then Luke continues on. He says, Peter was pleading and offering many logical reasons to believe. Whoever made a place for his message in their hearts received baptism. In fact, that day alone, about 3,000 people joined the disciples. The community continually committed themselves to learning what the apostles taught, gathering for fellowship, breaking bread, and praying. Everyone felt a sense of awe because the apostles were doing many signs and wonders among them. There was an intense sense of togetherness among all who believed. They shared all their material possessions and trust They sold any possessions and goods that did not benefit the community and used the money to help everyone in need. They were unified as they worshiped at the temple day after day. In homes, they broke bread and shared meals with glad and generous hearts. The new disciples praised God and they enjoyed the goodwill of all the people of the city. Day after day, the Lord added to their number Everyone who was experiencing liberation. So there's a lot right there. But just a few things that I want to highlight as what it means to be a historically Christian church. And the first is radical inclusivity. This community was made up of people from all over the world, from day one. And it was intended for everyone in the world. That's why people heard the gospel message for the first time in their own language. Like this story does not belong to one nation. It doesn't belong to a preferred people or preferred side, it is a story for all of the world. As a matter of fact, things, contrary to what many of us have been told, things, music, movies, nations, books, things cannot be Christian because things cannot be inhabited by the Holy Spirit. Only people can be Christian. There is no Christian nation, because this is a message for Christians in every nation. And there are Christians in every nation, and those people are called the church. So one of my favorite writers, who just incidentally has a huge write-up today on CNN, Philip Yancey, writes about the early church. He says this, He says, when I read accounts of the New Testament church, no characteristic stands out more sharply than diversity. The primary testing ground of grace, beginning with Pentecost, a gathering of people from many countries, the Christian church dismantled the barriers of gender, race, and social class that had marked Jewish congregations. So the first thing to go at the start of the church was a lack of uniformity. And the first thing to come in was the presence of diversity of all kinds. So my friend Scott McKnight says something similar in his book, A Fellowship of Difference. He says, to get some concrete ideas in our heads right away, we need to see that these early Christians did not meet in churches, by what he means church buildings, and sit apart from one another in pews, and then when the music ended, get in their cars and go home. These, those early churches were small and were much closer to our home Bible studies than most of our worship services. Recently, a careful study by a British scholar concluded that if the Apostle Paul's house churches were composed of about 30 people, a maximal estimate, this would have been their approximate makeup. A craft worker in whose home they met, along with his wife, children, a couple of male slaves, a female domestic slave, and a dependent relative, some tenants with families and slaves and dependents also living in the same home in rented rooms, some family members of a householder who himself does not participate in the house church, a couple of slaves whose owners do not attend, some freed slaves who do not participate in the church, a couple homeless people, a few migrant workers renting small rooms in the home, Add to this mix some Jewish folks and perhaps an enslaved prostitute and we see how many different tastes were in a typical house church in Rome. Men and women, citizens and freed slaves and slaves who had no legal rights, Jews and Gentiles, people from all moral walks of life and perhaps most notably people from elite classes all the way down the social scale to homeless people. Do you think these folks agreed on everything? Was it hard? Yes. That's the whole point of what it means to be a church. That's the whole point of what it means to be the church. So years and years ago, when churches were being planted a lot in the late 90s, about the same time that Ecclesia was planted, everyone was talking about what was called the homogeneous unit principle. It was actually a missionary principle that in the mission field actually had some good around it, but basically it said this, if you wanna grow a church fast, here's what you do. You get a bunch of people together who are as much alike as possible, and you, squelch any level of difference, and because you have decided to go out to the suburbs or in the city and just gather people who are already like each other, then they will come just to be around other people who are like them. And the reality is that right now, some of the biggest congregations in America are built on the homogeneous unit principle, which is a great way to build a church and a terrible way to make disciples. Second aspect that leaps off the page for me in Acts 2 is the expectation that Christians should expect persecution. Like this is a story That is rooted in crucifixion and in the grand sweep of church history the times when the church has done its best when the church has been at its best when it's grown the most is when it has suffered under persecution and the times when it's actually been the worst is when it sought and found power and greed and politics The Christian story actually begins with fratricide when Jews rise up to kill Christians, and then that persecution transfers its power over to the state, where the state hunts down and kills Christians. All the way through, there's persecution, there's death, but in the middle of it is a cross where Jesus sacrifices, though he had the power to do otherwise. His very self and the cross itself represents God's refusal to use power and violence to redeem the world. Could have done it that way. But God refuses power and violence as tools to redeem the world. And we also see love and service for the other. Luke says in that picture, that those early Christians shared all their material possessions in common. And pretty much to this point, most of us have been talked out of doing that as a practical reality. Like, and it doesn't take a whole lot of work because we don't want to do it in the first place. But this is what they did. And they took care of everyone, beginning with those who were in need. They we look around and say, I have resources. And part of the call on my life is to share those resources with people who need them. And that's a revolutionary way of living. And in a world where everyone is just consumed with having and keeping and getting more, what would stand out more? What would have more impact, a group of people who gathered and did the same thing as everybody else or a group of people who looked at their unhoused sisters and brothers or people at the colombia Venezuela border or in Argentina, in Africa and said, we have resources that you need and we'll share them. It's not just the Bible that speaks this way. It's not just a propaganda document. Because early on in the second century of the church, there are a lot of questions about who Christians were and what they did and why they did it, what they were aimed at. And so there is this ancient letter called a letter to Diagnetus, just explaining what Christians did and who they were, how they lived. And in part, this is how it describes the Christian lifestyle says, Christians are indistinguishable from other men, either by nationality, language, or custom. They do not inhabit separate cities of their own or speak a strange dialect or follow some outlandish way of life. Their teaching is not based upon reveries inspired by the curiosity of men. Unlike some other people, they champion no purely human doctrine with regard to dress, food, and manner of life in general. They follow the customs of whatever city they happen to be living in, whether it is Greek or foreign. And yet there is something extraordinary about their lives. They live in their own countries as though they were only passing through. They play their full role as citizens, but labor under all the disabilities of aliens. Any country can be their homeland, but for them their homeland, wherever it may be, is a foreign country. Like others, they marry and have children, but they do not expose them. They share their meals, but not their wives. They live in the flesh, but they are not governed by the desires of the flesh. They pass their days upon earth, but they are citizens of heaven, obedient to the laws. They yet live on a level that transcends the law. Christians love all men, but all men persecute them condemned because they are not understood. They are put to death, but raised to life again. They live in poverty, but enrich many. They are totally destitute, but possess an abundance of everything. They suffer dishonor, but that is their glory. They are defamed, but vindicated. A blessing is their answer to abuse. Deference, their response to insult. For the good they do, they receive the punishment of malefactors, but even then they rejoice as though receiving the gift of life. They are attacked by the Jews as aliens. They are persecuted by the Greeks. Yet no one can explain the reason for this hatred. Ecclesia, what I want you to know is that this Is our DNA. And it is not a story that we get to make up. That we come from a place. And that place gives us structure and meaning for our lives and the way that we move through the world. And it is inherited from faithful women and men who have looked through the Scriptures and saw what it was, endeavored to become what God has invited us to be. And that's what makes us, us. And I've shared this before, but it's so crucial to understanding life. And when the Apostle Paul explains what it means to share the Eucharist with the church. He says these words. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and broke it. For I received what I passed on to you, on the night that Jesus was betrayed. All of those words, the same root meaning that something is being handed over. And this is what it means to be Christian, to receive what it is that has been handed to us and to hand it over to others. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.ecclesiahouston.org.